3: Good morning listeners, it is the 1st of April, 7am and you're on Thursday Breakfast on 3CR, good morning Priya.
0: Good morning, Rosie. Uh, It is, I can't believe we're, I mean, I always say this, like every single week, I'm like, I can't believe we're this far into the year. Um, It's April Fool's Day. I've already been uh, pranked by my coffee, which fell immediately uh, out of my hand when I took it from the barista onto the ground. Uh, So uh, I hope that doesn't happen to any of you
3: this morning. Absolutely not. I mean, we've also been pranked by a file, so it's really going well this April Fool's Day, but we're here.
0: I mean, I feel like, you know, what,
3: what else could go wrong? <laughs> Nothing.
0: <laughs> Nothing. Um, but I hope you're all having a good week. There's, uh, been a lot happening this week. I think, um, you know, yesterday was Transgender Day of Visibility, which is always, um, a complex day. It's, uh, you know, v- visibility is, such a difficult thing to navigate for trans people like myself, um, you know, when you think about the idea that I think this came from Benji Ra on Twitter, um, visibility without protection is just a trap. So thinking about the sort of structural changes that need to happen in the world to make trans people feel safe, um, rather than just
3: a sort of tokenistic, uplifting um, and pinkwashing. Absolutely. Um, And if people want to think about that more, maybe they could listen back to the binary busting broadcast that happened on 3CR a couple of weeks ago.
0: Yeah, you can access all of the audio and there's also written transcripts on 3cr.org.au slash binary busting. Amazing. So what have we got on the show today? Well, we have a we have some really fantastic interviews today about some very important and timely topics. So, first of all, um, earlier this week, Carly spoke to Thea Deacon Greenwood, who's a solicitor from the Elizabeth Abbott Community Legal Center, about calls and support for restorative justice models as another way to address sexual assault matters. Elizabeth Abbott Community Legal Centre's support for alternative models to the criminal legal system follows in light of the New South Wales Law Reform Commission's recent recommendations to expand criminal legal reforms for sexual consent.
3: And then... Um uh, Scheherazade did a great interview so on Saturday hundreds gathered at the State Library in Naam, Melbourne to commemorate Palestinian Land Day which falls on March 30th every year it commemorates the murder of six Palestinian protesters in 1976 as they were calling attention to Israel's expropriation of thousands of hectares of land and uh, Scheherazade was joined to to discuss this with uh, by Tasnam Samak, who is a PhD candidate at Monash University, researching the emergence of youth political subjectivities and imaginaries. She has been involved in Palestinian and Muslim organizing since the 2008 Israeli onslaught in Gaza. And after that, um, earlier this week,
0: I also spoke with April Day, who's a proud Yorta Yorta Wemba Wemba and Barapa Barapa woman. She's the daughter of Tanya Day, who's a proud Yorta Yorta grandmother who died in the custody of Victoria Police in 2017. And April is also the founder of the Dajua Foundation, which she discusses with us today. And the Dajua Foundation is having a wonderful launch uh, this Saturday, the 3rd of April as well. So there'll be more
3: information about that and how you can donate to the foundation um, in the interview. Amazing. And then we're going to finish up with a live interview with Ronnie Gorey, who is a Gunai Kurnai woman who lives and writes in Victoria. She's joining us today to speak about her debut book, Black and Blue, a memoir of her childhood and the decade she spent in the police force.
0: Yeah, I can't tell you how excited I am to speak with Ronnie about this book. Um, It's really, it's so powerful. I recommend everybody goes out and gets a copy from Scribe Publications. And yeah, I think we'll just jump into the show. Let's go.
4: As the National Spotlight is fixed on addressing sexual assault and harassment in Australian politics, it's an important time to analyse and discuss how sexual assault and other forms of interpersonal violence are addressed to Australian legal systems. Today on the show, we're joined by Thea Deakin-Greenwood, a solicitor from the Elizabeth Evatt Community Legal Centre, to speak about calls for restorative justice models to be used to address sexual assault matters. Welcome, Thea, and thank you for joining us on 3 cr Thursday Morning Breakfast. Thanks so much for having me. So, Thea, can you first start off by talking about how the Elizabeth Evatt Community Legal Centre came to be talking about and doing restorative justice research and work?
2: Sure, so we are a community legal centre. We're based in Katoomba and we cover the Blue Mountains and the Central Tablelands as well. So we are a free community legal centre. We provide legal advice and casework and referrals to men and women, um, but uh, our primary kind of focus of our casework is, um, often involves families who have separated or are separating, um, and sometimes family and domestic violence are, you know, are features in those people's lives. And often we find that sexual violence or child sexual assault also comes up as issues for our clients. Um, I've been working in the community sector for about 17, 18 years and I've always done this work, mainly working with survivors um, who have experienced, you know, really complex harms in their life It's had really profound impact on them. Um, And sometimes people seek um, our advice to understand what the criminal legal system can do to support them. Um, And we really have gotten to a point where um, over many, many years of practice, we've seen how the criminal legal system has failed people in addressing the things that they need and want. Um, And, uh, you know, that first point of reporting to police is often a really unsatisfactory process for many people. Um, And so restorative justice is just one mechanism that might be able to better meet the needs of survivors. And we're calling for it to be included as one of the range of options that survivors should have access to in New South Wales. Um, It's not the only one, but it is um, the strong evidence, which I can go into in some more detail, about the reasons why it might meet people's needs better than what the current system does.
4: Yeah, and before we get into that, Can you speak about some of the current ways that the legal system does deal with matters of sexual assault? And what are some of the downfalls that the Elizabeth Everett Community Legal Centre sees?
2: Yeah, sure. So, as I mean, most people would be, you know, familiar with the usual way of reporting something to the police, going into a police station, asking to speak to somebody on the front counter. Um, If it's a domestic violence matter, you might be fortunate enough to be linked with, um, you know, somebody who's had good training in domestic violence. Um, There's domestic violence liaison officers in some police stations who have, um, you know, more advanced training in relation to family and domestic violence. They're not always available, and the experience for lots of people coming to the front counter might be one where their experience may be minimized or maybe dismissed. Or if there's a history of family violence, it might not be heard in the way um, that the person has experienced what's happened, and they might also not have the language to be able to explain what's happened to them. It's a really confronting process for many people, and many people have had negative experiences with the police in the past. Um, and when I say that, I'm talking about men and women, as well as children, and particularly Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, First Nations people, who might have had very many negative experiences coming in contact with the police from a young age. So um, that is one way, reporting to the police, but often um, making a statement is a really challenging and difficult thing to do, and police want to know things like the dates and times and the details of what happened, um, and we wouldn't say that that's a trauma-informed way to engage somebody about what has happened to them, which might have been deeply um, damaging to them and may have been something that they're only just starting to talk about. Um, so that's one way. Um, The other way, reporting to the police, there's actually a form which you can use, which is called a sexual assault reporting option, a SARO form. Um, And that's a form that you can fill in in the privacy of your own home and include as much information or as little information as you want. And for some people, that's an important placeholder, if you like, to have have an official version of what happened to them held somewhere. Um, And we've definitely seen how that can be used by police as an intelligence gathering tool. Um, And sometimes police are able to, Bring charges when they have, you know, kind of a bulk of evidence against a certain person, um, and then the survivor might be contacted to give a more formal statement. Um, But all of those processes are really quite narrow and we wouldn't say that they're trauma-informed. Um, we wouldn't say that they really meet the needs of survivors, um, but people sometimes have needs and they want to be heard and they need to have their voice respected. Um, and often that police reporting process doesn't do any of those things for them. Um, it might minimise their experience. It might dismiss it. Um, we certainly have clients who have been told things like the police that it'll be very hard to prove. It was historic. You were in a relationship with him. It's his word against yours, things like that, which really minimize and cause a lot of damage and harm to our clients. Um, we also have other clients whose matters have just been disregarded. Um, and in some, some instances, people, women have, who are primary victims have also been charged with offenses because, you know, police, um, misdirect charges to women instead of to the primary aggressor who's often in gender violence matters isn't, isn't, is male. So yeah, those are the those are the ways the criminal legal system responds, Um, and obviously it's then up to the police to make a decision about whether or not there's grounds to bring charges. And as we're seeing in the media, you know, at the moment it's really very obvious and stark how few matters get through to charges, and how very few of those go through to a prosecution. Um, sexual violence is the least convicted matter in, in Australia, in the criminal jurisdiction. Um, the vast majority of people who are responsible for sexual, harmful sexual behaviours, as well as physical violence, are in our communities. Um, and so we believe restorative justice has got a better option to support those people as well. Um, better than what the criminal legal system can do. So that's why, you know, we believe it's a good way to have another choice for survivors and for their families, all of who are impacted by family and domestic violence
4: and sexual violence. Mm. And the Elizabeth Everett Community Legal Centre was featured in The Guardian recently where Alia Fleming, the principal solicitor, told journalists that Australia should move towards a restorative justice model to address sexual assault matters. So, yeah, can you tell us a bit more about what a restorative justice model could
2: look like? Yeah, for sure. Um, so restorative justice in the criminal setting is really about any mechanism, um, which brings together the person who's harmed and the person who's responsible, often with their family and community to address the harm that occurred. And it's often done with the help of an independent third person who's a qualified, you know, restorative practitioner. Um, Really, it's a mechanism for understanding people's needs and seeking accountability from the person who's responsible to see whether or not their needs might be met. Um, It's certainly not a a quick process. It doesn't involve, you know, it doesn't happen in the aftermath of crime. It's usually a slow process, which takes a lot of preparation and careful work. Um, But it's based on the principles that, a survivor has got um, the right to have a voice and to and to be heard Um, so there's that recognition of their voice Um, they should have an opportunity to talk about what they need to feel safe and it also requests accountability from the person who's responsible that is not to a criminal standard it's about people um, acknowledging that they've been responsible for a harm and that they want to take steps to to meet the needs of the person who they've harmed to listen, um, to validate their experiences. Sometimes it involves apology, but that's not necessary. Ne- not necessarily part of restorative practices. It's really about um, a process which for many people can be a repair to what had happened. It's certainly a process which centres on the survivor's needs um, and also understands the impact of particularly sexual assault on communities. Um, so there's many, many practices which are restorative including healing circles and speaking circles where people can come together to talk about the impact of something in communities. Um, It may involve a direct dialogue between the person and um, the person harmed and the person responsible, but really it's a framework of practice which um, puts the focus back on repairing the harm. Um, So yeah, in that way it doesn't do what the criminal legal system does. um, But the starting point is to ask survivors what they need and what they want in their life and what the impact of the harm has been um, and to then orientate services and support around them. Um, and that starting point is is how we work at our service as well as treating our clients as experts in their lives and seeing them as people who can make um, good choices about what they want and what they need. And we just want to make sure that those support those choices are available for them.
4: And who do you think should be delivering or facilitating these types of programs and how do you see restorative justice programs working Mm -hmm. in conjunction with or alongside the criminal legal system?
2: Yeah, that is a great question. Um, look, we, we believe that communities have the answers to the, the harms that they experience. Um, sometimes they might need a little bit of support to link together and to find the connections that they need. That's about agencies having, you know, values of wanting to work together, services having similar visions on how we can, you know, use community and strengthen community connections to help people who need, who need our support. It's also about individuals, you know, volunteers, older people, elders in community who might have skills and knowledge about what community needs, and and how we can help our families and our communities feel safe. Um, it's also about recognizing that the vast majority of people don't report to the police. So that criminal process, um, even for people who who wish to um, to pursue it, is really only available to a minority of people. So we need to get better as a community as talking about how to address harmful things that have happened, and to understand the impact on us all when those things happen in our communities. Um, we need to you know, move towards those models of understanding community as places of healing, and so we're strongly supportive of restorative practice being embedded in community um, responses as well. Um, We also think that, you know, restorative um, referral should be available from the criminal system. So we advocate for something that could work alongside the criminal legal system, not in place of it. um, And that we, you know, our model is to have a, a fully functional restorative justice process which could accept referrals from either place so really meeting um, survivors where they are and and recognizing them as being experts um, and providing our services where it's safe to do so and that's yeah that's a long process to make
4: that assessment can you speak about some of the ways that elizabeth ever community legal center are practicing restorative justice now
2: yeah, definitely. I mean, restorative, using a restorative lens is really how lots of community organisations work in in valuing, you know, the voice and the expertise of our clients in, you know, as being experts in their own lives. So that starting point of always listening, um, you know, never doing things to clients, doing it with them, um, giving them, you know, giving them the confidence and the support that they might need to make decisions and having lots of choices and options and validating their um, their choices and recognising that they should have those um, those things available to them in practice you know we've been doing this work for a couple of years now we've been very fortunate to get a small grant um, and that's been that's allowed us to employ um, a worker to help us develop a practice manual which is adapting um, you know best practice from around the world as well as within Australia and New Zealand. Um, and we really are working towards having a demonstration or a pilot project up and running where we'd be able to accept referrals and provide a restorative practice for um, for clients in particular matters. Um, we're also looking at funding to develop some community healing circles and really you know trying to uh, move that idea into community and hopefully we can work with other agencies to support that kind of work as well. Um, collaboration is a really important part of how we work. Um, you know, we don't think that anybody really has expertise in this area. It's about linked up services and us all finding shared values and best ways to support our clients. So we um we're doing a lot of community education, we're doing a lot of speaking and consultation. Um, Jane Belitho and I have been consulting with the sector for about two years now. And there's a strong support, as we kind of see in the media at the moment, that people really are wanting alternatives to what the criminal system is offering. Um, so it's a really, um, it's really unfortunate that we're having to have these conversations in the wake of so much trauma. But we are really hopeful that, you know, we can do better to support the needs of people who have been harmed. Um, and also support the needs um, and the, you know, the services available for people who have used harm, um, because, you know, as a community, these people are, you know, our family members, um, our, our brothers, fathers, cousins, you know, aunties, uncles, you know, we have lots of people in our families and in our communities who are responsible for harmful things. And we also believe that we need to lift some of that shame and stigma in accessing help if people are wanting to do that. So, yeah, it's, um, you know, it's about coming together and and thinking about different ways of doing these things. And as a service, we're happy to to talk to anybody and to work with anybody or any service that wants to have these conversations with us too.
4: Yeah, I think it's really important to note as well that there's so many people in the community who are a part of, you know, community accountability processes or working through ways to address harm without going to the police Um, and all of That's currently unfunded work. Absolutely, yeah. But lastly, (laughs) I wanted to um, ask a question uh, about the New South Wales government, who Mm -hmm. is currently preparing its response to a New South Wales Law Reform Commission review of consent in relation to sexual offences. So can you speak about some of the recommendations that came out of this review last year? Look, in terms of the recommendations, I can't speak
2: specifically to each and every one of them, but we believe that you know affirmative consent is something that was missing from the, that, those recommendations. But um, again, I would say that you know any recommendation, any law can only do so much, and at the end of the day, it's about the police seeking to apply it. And we can see time and again that more law actually doesn't make the system better. Um, we did not support the coercive control um, reform. Forms that we've recently looked at as well in relation to family and domestic violence because we just don't believe that more legislation and more law is the way to go um, because it just hasn't, there's no evidence, you know, to show that violence has decreased in our communities by giving the police more power. So um, it's about educating, you know, our, our children and young people as well about what consent is and to make sure that we really understand and giving really... High quality education to kids in schools, um, and to, in our families and in our communities as well. So we believe that those types of changes are going to be more important than, than more legislation. Um, but yeah, obviously it was, uh, a lot of people were disappointed with the way in which that review has resulted. Um, and we made submissions to that process about restorative justice as a framework as well. So
4: yeah. 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 Um, I did really like that one of the main recommendations was to review initiatives, um, looking at education in the broader community, as well as schools about consent and sexual activity and relationships. Just lastly, how can listeners find out a bit more about how restorative justice practices are progressing in Australia?
2: Oh, thanks for that question. Um, they can contact our service. Our, our, our project called Transforming Justice Australia is linked on, on our um, webpage at Elizabeth Everett Community Legal Centre. They can have a look at that webpage. They can sign up for our newsletters. Um, They can get in touch with us directly. I'm very accessible and available to anybody who wants to speak with us. I speak with many survivors um, every week, some of who have had restorative processes themselves because they've set them up um, themselves with the person who harmed them. So lots of people um, may have done something like that and not really realised that's what they were doing, um, which is amazingly brave. So I think, you know, we really need to continue to honor the voices of survivors um, and, and to really privilege their voices in these spaces because um, we don't, you know, it's really important that we're doing that at the moment and the media are doing a really good job at doing that. Um, and we continue to try to make spaces for people to speak for themselves when they want to. So um, that's a really big part of our work is really being grounded in the, the things that survivors and our clients who contact us want. Um, so yeah, we're happy to speak with anybody also happy to speak with people who have used harm and might not be sure about what to do about that. So we can provide referrals, some casework and and plenty of information to anybody who wants it Um, and to services as well. If they want to talk with us about training
4: or or how they can be involved, we're happy to talk to anybody. Great. Well, thanks so much, Thea, for joining us on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast to speak about restorative justice. Thanks, Carly. I really appreciate your time and focus on this issue. So thank you.
0: And you're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And you just heard an interview between Carly and Thea Deacon Greenwood, who's a solicitor from the Elizabeth Abbott Community Legal Center, who spoke about calls and support for restorative justice models as another way to address sexual assault matters.
2: Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. They're 100% recycled cards, Plastic-free stationery and Earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter.
6: You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR, 855 AM. On Saturday, hundreds gathered at the State Library in Naam, Melbourne, to commemorate Palestinian Land Day, which falls on March 30 every year. It commemorates the murder of six Palestinian protesters in 1976 as they were calling attention to Israel's confiscation of thousands of hectares of land. Joining us today to discuss this is Tasneem Samak, who is a PhD candidate at Monash University in the Faculty of Education, Researching the Emergence of Youth Political Subjectivities and Imaginaries. She's been involved in Palestinian and Muslim organizing since 2008, Israeli onslaught on Gaza. Good morning, Tasnim. Thank you for joining us. Could you firstly tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do?
7: Um, yeah, so I'm a, a PhD candidate at the moment at Monash University, and my research looks at... Um, kind of the intersections between how we learn politics and also how we come to our politics. So um, I interview um, political, well, we don't like to use the word activist, but um, Muslims who are politically active from the 9-11 generation, and um, I spoke to them about, you know, what they're involved in politically and also how they see their own politics. So it's a kind of, yeah, a counter-storytelling approach. Yeah, and I'm also Palestinian. So um, my dad was born in Gaza in a refugee camp in 1963. Um, but his family, well, they're from Jaffa. Um, from a village in Yaffa, which is now um, Tel Aviv, the city, Israeli city. And my mum is from Janine Yabed, or Yabed Janine, that's the village as well. Um, And she was born there. And they both um, became refugees to Jordan in 1967. So, yeah, I, I was born in Jordan. And now I'm here. Uh, thanks for sharing
6: that. Um, and Palestinian Land Day is an important event for Palestinian collective narrative. And I was just thinking, yeah, especially with um, the kind of research you do, uh, could you speak about or speak to this um, and particularly with reference to defiance of colonisation and um, Samud, embodied Samud um, or resilience in English?
7: Um, yeah, definitely. So, um, I insert myself in my research. So there's a kind of auto-ethnographic component because I draw on, you know, um, Palestinian epistemologies, um, particularly in terms of, um, counter-memory and counter-narrative. And I integrate that with critical race theories, um, counter-storytelling. But yeah, the, it's the idea of kind of, um, trying to dismantle national myths or Zionist myths that are used to support and sustain the Israeli state. And we see, you know, politicians across um, liberal democracies uh, reiterate these myths in that way. They silence Palestinian narratives, our own truths. Um, And Land Day is an opportunity for us to engage in this kind of truth telling in um when we do commemorate, we also resist because um we we tell the, um this history of occupation of um Israeli brutality and um the robbing of land that is going on uh, in the present, so today we have the building of illegal settlements we see the confiscation of land, and we also see the home demolitions and um You know, if you follow any Palestinian information or news outlets, there's always videos of homes being demolished. And actually, you know, Palestinians um, have to pay a fee so that the Israeli authorities can demolish their own home for them. So to avoid paying this fee and giving the state this money, um, you see Palestinian families having to demolish their own home. So that an Israeli family can build a home in its place. So it's a very concrete and very kind of gruesome, uh, realities happening on the ground that reflect the kind of uh, conflict that exists, um, in terms of narrative. So you see, you see the material kind of, um, yeah. It, it can't, it has to be, <laughs> At the end of the day, there's a dominant narrative and a narrative that's erased or, you know, uh, pushed to the margin, but it's going to be a contest. It's not, there can't be both narratives that are the truthful one. So eventually that's kind of what we're committed to. The more we circulate outside of, um, this history and the more we center the voices of Palestinians and that's That's how we kind of um, push against what is propagated as the reality on the ground of Israeli colonisation. And as you mentioned,
6: this is ongoing just as the colonisation here on these lands, on these Aboriginal lands, are ongoing. I was wondering if you could speak a bit to, I guess, resistance to occupation and solidarity with First Nations people globally um, but especially here, and in the face of uh dispossession and Palestinian dispossession and meaning that the diaspora Palestinian diaspora is huge,
7: yeah, of course, so um Given that um Australia is a stellar colony but also a Western liberal democracy, um it has close affinity um with to Israel. So this is something we hear across um the political lines, um, uh, whether it's from Labour or Liberal, um, there's this um uh, often reiteration of the friendship, a close friendship and, and allyship between Australia and Israel. And often, um, they refer to shared values, but they don't really define what these shared values are. Um, it, it it's kind of, uh, you know, I mean, they're saying that they're appealing to Western superiority, like civilizational. You know, democracy, freedom, et cetera. But, um, we can, something that I usually say, and I flip that and I say, well, maybe these shared values are the values of, um, yeah, uh, settler colonial logics, racial logics, um, the values of, um, yeah, as we said, confiscation of land, um, the ethnic cleansing. Because these are shared histories and something people don't usually recognize as well is that um, for Palestinians, we were colonized by the British and then um, through the establishment of the Israeli state. So we share that with Australia, you know, the British colonization is there too, uh, which people don't usually um, notice. Um but yeah, in terms of um solidarity building, I mean that's that's where the sol- solidarity needs to begin in in being aware of these commonalities and uh, that's where shared struggle needs to be around. So when we see that Australia often uses its power on the international level to back Israel and, and shield Israel from um accountability so there's a protection of is you know maintaining israeli impunity when it comes to crimes against the palestinians this is very much um, done because of the friendship between the two states so when australians here Um, we all mobilise to shift the political culture, then that will directly change the way that Australia behaves towards Israel. And we hope that that will be um, in the direction of supporting Palestinian freedom. But, you know, there won't be any settler colonial government that is going to do that. And so for us... um, You know, our hopes are in Indigenous sovereignty, when, when Indigenous people, um, you know, there's self-determination, when, when they have that power to determine the direction where Australia goes, then this is, it's through their leadership that we'll see that, um, this support for Israel, this, um, protection of Israeli impunity won't be there anymore. And that's necessary for Um, The end of apartheid and occupation Because Israel Is sustained by um, The support that it receives from Western nations Um, So that's that's just how I see it you know but of course Us being here as Palestinians As part of the diaspora We're we're also considered Australian (laughs) So we occupy um, That kind of positionality And and with that comes the Responsibility like locally um and and yeah we we're part of we need to again it's about sides we need to be on the side of justice we can't just um use our position let's say as australian citizens to try to sway um australian politicians on palestine but then in the, in the same breath legitimize these politicians um even though they're they're part of a settler colonial government so it, these contradictions, I'm not asking for a purist politics, but you know, to keep these contradictions in mind and also, um, yeah, acknowledge, yeah, our role and try to not be kind of co-opted, um, in furthering one settler colonization in the, um, pursuit of the dismantling of another settler colony. I think that's quite important to me.
6: So you mentioned, uh, politicians, Austra- Australian settler politicians, um, and on Tuesday, which is on the same day that is Palestinian land day, um, the ALP conference approved an amendment tabled by, uh, Shadow Foreign Minister Penny Wong, um, which will see an Australian government headed by Labor recognizing a state of Palestine, but within, but still within the two state so called solution. Um, thoughts on this?
7: Yeah. So there's been um, a, so this, uh, there's been a kind of uh, battle happening within the ALP where there there are some who want to see um, the the ALP take a more uh, just position when it and fair position when it comes to what they term as the Israeli Palestinian conflict. Um, but I say they term it this way because. Um, To many of us, we term it as Israeli colonization, not Israeli-Palestinian conflict, you know. Um, But, yeah, uh, so we see that, yeah, they've tabled this amendment and it's been approved to say that a future Labour government should recognize a state of Palestine. But at the same time, um, what this means is basically um, what already – many liberal Western democracies are at, you know. Um it, It's a two-state, it's it's kind of, yeah, a, a reiterating a commitment to the two-state solution. However, many of us Palestinians have been saying for at least a decade uh, or two decades that the two-state solution um, has failed. There's no way to, to be able to establish that given uh, the expansion of illegal Israeli settlements on the land that politicians say is going to be where the Palestinian state is so um but that's just from a practical aspect a lot of us reject it also from a moral aspect because um to us we don't believe that uh, we only have a right to the land that remained after 1967 to us um you know we have the slogan that Palestinian Freedom is about um, having Palestine from the river to the sea, and therefore there needs to be a kind of um, dismantlement of the Israeli settler colonial structure and uh, a new solution, a, a decolonial one, that, yeah, and not necessarily a statist one that considers this. But in terms of ALP, I mean, even if, let's say, they wanted to take the position of a two-state solution, they could also um, take a position that the uh, siege on Gaza is illegal, which it is. Um, Even if just from a humanitarian point of view, I mean, if if they do want to commit to the 1967 borders, um, we don't hear that from the the ALP. Um, what we hear from the ALP, also from Penny Wong, is that, you know, to be a friend of Israel, you need to um, accept the um, – like, you, we need to push for negotiations and peace and security for both the Israelis and the Palestinians. And that kind of discourse, that that's quite a Zionist discourse and uh, an anti-Palestinian one because uh, the siege on Gaza – um, it has is it, sustained by these tropes you know um, about peace and security and we we don 't see an end in sight at the moment coming from the international community despite the um, dire uh, humanitarian situation and the um, breach of many human rights violations just by the existence of this siege so at the very least, what we can see what we want to see is that alP you know, take a position that Israel should lift the siege on Gaza. But, yeah, I mean, again, uh, ALP, its position on refugee detention, its position on indigenous rights, when we see that and we put their position on Palestine, then it's more understandable that that's where they are. (laughs) Yeah, it's not a very progressive party anymore, or what? not just anymore, but, yeah.
6: Yeah, I question whether it ever, it ever was considering yeah. they're the ones who, <laughs> yeah, who, well, part of the settler colony, um, and also they, they're the ones, um, who popularized the jump in the queue, um, yeah, narrative exactly. for, uh, people seeking asylum. Um, we're running out of time, but, um, if people want to know more, uh, especially in terms of, um, maybe uh showing solidarity or if they want to follow you, how can they do so? Uh
5: well
7: um you can follow you can follow me on Twitter, so at the MACTASNEM um or at For Palestine. Um but also we have um the Nakba Day coming up, which is um the day we commemorate the um the beginning of um israeli colonization so this is um the start of the ethnic cleansing of the palestinian people and that's on the 15th of may so there there should be some events happening around that organized by local groups so whether it's um free palestine melbourne or another group so you can um keep in touch and hopefully yeah we see more people show up for that every year um yeah Zionists here—they celebrate Israeli Independence Day with the presence of many Australian um, politicians and elite. And so, yeah, yeah, we make sure that we have the neck of the day to say that that kind of, uh, yeah, they're celebrating ethnic cleansing, which we reject. Well,
6: oh, thanks, Tasnim. That was Tasnim Samak, who is PhD candidate at Monash University and who has been involved in Palestinian and Muslim organising since the 2008 Israel, Israeli onslaught on Gaza.
5: Slavery is back.
3: Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force. Yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented, Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison.
5: It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And
3: I think it's up to people to decide uh, where the truth is.
0: Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin'
4: Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from
2: Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere every Monday at 4pm on your Community Radio 3CR.
1: We are still fired up and we're still
4: talking about revolution.
0: I'm speaking with April Day, who's a proud Yorta Yorta, Wemba Wemba, and Barapa Barapa woman. She is the daughter of Tanya Day, who's a proud Yorta Yorta grandmother who died in the custody of Victoria Police in 2017. April is also founder of the Dajoa Foundation. April, thank you so much for joining me today. No, thank you for having me. So uh, maybe before we speak about the foundation, could you tell us a little bit about your own and your family's fight on behalf of your mum auntie tanya day yeah so you know we've had
8: a really rough almost four years um, after losing mum it's been pretty intense you know trying to grieve and heal but also advocating um, for justice for mum and you know as sort of like our whole life was turned upside down and it was, you know, every day was just living, breathing, um, pretty much bringing awareness to what happened for mum and, and seeking that, that justice for her. Um, so I guess, you know, having that lived experience has then brought me to a point where I feel like um, something more needs to be done for our families because I can understand the gaps and where um, other families have fall between the cracks and, you know, sort of what, Support was really great for us, but then what wasn't great and the other things that the families miss out on. So, um, I thought to myself, you know, we really need something that is solely just for us by us. Um, so yeah, I worked on establishing the Dajua Foundation. Um, and it was in consultation with uh, other family members. So it's completely grassroots and it's family land, um, which I believe is the best way to move forward when, um, advocating
0: for our loved ones um, that have died in police custody. Absolutely. And, of course, since the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, there have tragically been at least 500 black deaths in custody, with five of these occurring in the last few months. So something really has to change. Um, as And as you mentioned, your own experiences and your family's fight was part of what led you to establish the Dajowa Foundation. But could you tell us a little bit about how that process came about and uh, a little bit about the inaugural board as well, because I understand that that is a really integral part of, um, of what the foundation is about.
8: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess, you know, and just knowing the importance of family led campaigns and how effective that they are, um, and how they are most likely to receive systemic change. And, um, a lot of our families are, you know, they don't have the support that they need to be able to reach a level that they're getting the right media attention and traction and, you know, that could possibly put the pressure on um, police and governments to, you know, to, to make those systemic changes. So um, it had come about after we had finished um, the... Um, inquest for mum and it's been something that has been working in the background for a long time. It just wasn't publicly known. So even supporting families that have recently lost loved ones in custody, that has always been working with, you know, me as that support person. It just wasn't necessarily launched. Um, And it was at the end of last year I had pitched to the Australian Communities Foundation who um, gave me, you know, a three to five minute pitch And I just sort of like yawned about the importance of what I was trying to do, the Darjeel Foundation and, you know, the circumstances around mum and was successful in getting 150,000 to help establish it. Um, so since then, you know, um, and that the foundation's been publicly launched, we've got another $20,000 donation. Um, I've also got support from Pay the Rent to be able to, uh, support our families and just to ensure that, um, you know, there's like a strategic coordinated approach that's culturally safe for our families and they've got that financial assistance and, um, campaign capacity building and media strategy training. Um, and just, you know, the importance of peer support and linking them in with other families and other communities that are able to, um, help them reach their goals and support them while they're on that journey. So, um, the board, um, are people that I'm really close with. Um, All of our relationships have obviously been formed as something that's really traumatic considering, you know, we've all got our similarities with losing, you know, that immediate family member in custody. But I think it's also really special and um, important that we're there to support one another and have, you know, sort of building something really great with the Dajua Foundation to then support other families in the way that we already support one another. So um it's myself, um Troy Brady who is the nephew of Annie Sherry Fisher Tilbury. Uh Samara Fernandez Brown, who's the cousin of Kumanjai Walker, Michaela Reynolds, uh is the sister of Nathan Reynolds, and we have Annie Carolyn Lewis, um, who is over in WA who unfortunately has lost multiple family members um in custody.
0: Yeah, it's I mean, there is so much trauma and heartbreak from losing a family member in custody and having to to put so much energy into that fight for justice and not necessarily knowing if, if there's going to be any kind of outcome. And a lot of that is related to being able to gather the resources and support that you need to actually mount that fight. And so it mm-hmm. seems like the Dajua Foundation is really going to be filling a very important role there in terms of providing that peer grassroots support from people uh, who actually have experienced, um, you know, this, this tragic loss and, but who are also able to kind of navigate these systems. Um, and as you said, you've been doing this, um, informally prior to the launch of the foundation as well. Um, so, uh, what kind of supports will the Dajwa Foundation provide, uh, to families of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, um, who have passed away in custody?
8: Yeah, so like firstly it'll just be reaching out to the family, um, once they've lost the loved one in custody and just seeing if they need anything in terms of linking them in with um legal services, um, even if it, you know, is um mental health support, linking them if they wanted to yarn to someone, but as well as some financial assistance to, you know, make sure that um they don't have to worry about um burying their loved one at such a traumatic time, you know, so helping them with sorry business Um, and also when they attend things like um, the coronial inquest, you know, ensuring that they've got somewhere to stay while they're there, that they're not missing out on paying their bills because they're not able to go to work. Um, And as I mentioned earlier, you know, having that uh, capacity the campaign capacity building. So linking them in with some um, real skilled people uh, that are, you know, used to campaigns and organising and that can help them just strategically plan their campaign around what they're trying to achieve, um, whether it be, you know, similar to us, you know, abolishing a law or they just want to, um, you know, focus on police accountability, whatever that may be, helping them, like, strategically plan the best – Way forward for that, and getting them some media training, so you know a lot of us had never had to speak to media before was really shame didn't even have to didn 't even want to speak you know in public at all um and the next minute they're thrown into like a media circus, so ensuring that the families um are supported enough that they feel confident um and know know the right tools that they need when they're in front of the camera,
0: yeah, absolutely, and I think uh the fact that this this Um, You know, the loss of a loved one in custody comes with an immense amount of financial costs as well as the emotional costs of of grieving and going through the the process. You know, um, there there are fundraisers ongoing for a lot of people, including um, the family of Wayne Fella Morrison, I think. People don't necessarily realize how long legal battles take, how much they cost, um, how much time people have to sacrifice and, and, you know, the loss of wages and everything during that time as well, which just compounds yes. how hard the fight is. It, um, it absolutely does. And, like, just to put it in perspective, like, in
8: December, mum would have been gone for four years and we still have weekly meetings and yarns and all sorts of things to do with mum's case it's just not publicly known because not everything is in the media like as much as mum stuff's out there and everyone knows about it 4 years on we are still having to do really intense work around what happened and that that's a long time to be constantly constantly giving up your your time your family time your own mental health your financial you know so I just think if there's something in place to be able to support the families, it makes it a little bit easier, and they're not they're less likely to get burnt out and i know I know what that feels like,
0: yeah, absolutely, and so turning to to being able to to raise that money for for the foundation, I know you've been planning an incredible fundraiser for the Daduwa Foundation, which is going to be held this Saturday, the third of April, so could you tell us a bit about what you have lined up for the day?
8: Yeah, so it was really important to get um everyone together, you know, the families um, and the community that had been supporting the families. So we thought it was a great idea to sort of have a joint launching fundraising event. Um, and it's going to be this Saturday on the 3rd of April between 12 and 4 at the Abbotsford Convent. So you can get the tickets via Eventbrite, event, right? And, um, yeah, there's a few different um, things with it. So we've got family speeches from multiple family members and they'll just share the story of their loved one and what happened and what they're advocating for. And then we've got a family exhibition that has photos of people that had died in custody as well as their loved ones at rallies um, and protests, you know, at the coronials. So just really highlighting and paying respects to the people that have died, but as well as to the people that are still left behind that have to fight. And... um, Then we have an art exhibition, so we have um, a big mob of artists have donated their work to the foundation, and we will auction that off. And then we have a major part of our event is um, artists, so we've got um, everyone that is actually a part of it has donated their time, Um, and you know got Uncle Archie Roach, Barker, uh, Kian, um, Soju Gang, and there's yeah Alice Sky. Like we've got a such a good lineup, and just feel really thankful that the community has rallied behind the families and the foundation to support it. Um, it's it's a really special event just for that reason on its own.
0: Yeah, it really sounds like it's going to be I don't know a beautiful a beautiful day that that comes obviously out of something. That is really difficult, heartbreaking and traumatic, but bringing people together to sort of, you know, build that community space and support one another and enjoy enjoy themselves on that day as well.
8: Yeah, and it's actually the first time that some of us have um, we'll be in the same space and get to meet in person. Like a lot of us know one another really well. We check in, you know, we make sure that we're doing okay And anniversaries and birthdays and after coronials, but that's just over the phone, you know? So being able to, you know, just be in the same space is going to be really, it's going to be really special and everyone's really looking forward to it. So, you know, I hope that, um, you know community can get behind us and purchase some tickets um, and if you know you're not able to attend still make a donation via the Australian Communities Foundation link that is on our um, Instagram page in our bio and as well as uh, we've been taking donations for people to buy mob tickets and have just been giving them to mob that we know um, may not be able to afford to attend.
0: Wonderful thank you for that and and for people that are looking for these details you can find uh, the Dajua Foundation at, at D-H-A-D-J-O-W-A Foundation on Instagram and you can also search Dajua Foundation to find the website where you can get that Eventbrite link. Um, yeah. Now just before we wrap up, I know a National Day of Action is being called to fight for an end to Aboriginal deaths in custody on the 10th of April and I was wondering if you wanted to speak to that um, at all.
8: Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's 15 family members that have been working together, um, campaigning to meet with the Prime Minister. Um, and you know, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be really important that all around the nation people support the families and get behind us and rally alongside us, um, to really bring attention to what's happening and just how horrible it is that we've had over 500. Aboriginal deaths in custody since the Royal Commission and we've had zero convictions. You know, the past three weeks, um, we've had four Aboriginal deaths in the past two months, we've had five. So, um, that's horrific to have those numbers. And, you know, we need, we need the governments to take us seriously and have a meet with the families to hear our calls to action. And, you know, we really need them to have a look at the Royal Commission and the the recommendations and and see the failures and see how them failures have led to our loved ones continuously dying. You know, we want them to have a review of that. We want them to implement those because I know that if they did 30 years ago, my mum would still be here today. And I know that is for a lot of our other family members. You know, them recommendations hit close to home because the ones that will fail to be implemented are the ones that led to their loved ones losing their life. So it's going to be um a really powerful day and it's a really important day um and you know we really need for families to take the same approach that they did um you know back when the Black Lives Matter rally was and um come and support come and support um
0: the families Definitely. And yeah, I just can't encourage people enough to support the Dajowa Foundation and please turn up on the 10th of April. There will be a rally happening in your city. I know things are at least happening in Narm, in Minjin, and also uh, in Sydney as far as I know. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us, April. I really appreciate all the work that you do. Thank you.
5: We've got a common enemy the same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel. is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers united self-defense mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle.
1: 3CR's Rooming House and Homeless Persons Issues program featuring information on health and housing services as well as live local guests, artists, and performers from our unsung community. Join us at 12 pm on Thursday on 3CR 855 AM. Yeah.
0: And you're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR, 855 AM. It is 8.01 AM, and you just heard an interview with April Day, who is a proud Yorta Yorta Wamba Wamba and Barapa Barapa woman and the daughter of Tanya Day, who's a proud Yorta Yorta grandmother who died in the custody of Victoria Police in 2017 about the Dajua Foundation, which, uh, which has a fundraiser launch this Saturday, the 3rd of April. And now... I'm going to go to an interview with Ronnie Gari, who's a Gunai Kurnai woman who lives in rights in Victoria. She's going to join us today to speak about her debut book, Black and Blue, which is a memoir of her childhood and the decade that she spent in the police force. So Ronnie, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today.
5: No worries, Priya. Thank you so much for
0: having me. Um, I, I can't recommend this book enough. It's, it was just such a, such a beautiful read. And I guess before, um, before we sort of jump into talking about some of the content, uh, when did you realize that you needed to write this memoir? Because um, especially considering that you've written something that particularly in the second half speaks back so powerfully to the blue code of silence. Um, and ultimately, you didn't leave the police force by choice, but rather because it had taken so much from you. I can only imagine that so much of this was really challenging to write. So what was this writing process like and, and how did you get started?
5: So I remember the day vividly that I started writing this book. It was November the 3rd, 2011. Um, it was the day before I medically discharged from the police. Um, and I, the reason I started writing is, um, I prior to that, I'd been diagnosed with, um, PTSD, anxiety and depression. And part of my traumas that I've experienced, I've had lost a lot of my memories, um, and including my, Memories of raising my children, I don't all, you know, and family, um, including deaths in the family. So it's like whenever I hear um, that a particular person has passed away in my family, it's like I'm hearing it for the first time again, But so it's almost as if I'm always grieving. But um that was the reason why I wrote. Um, yeah, but the process, the way I write, um, I had to be mindful of... um Especially in the blue part, I had to be mindful of any the legal ramifications and um, had to be really, like, switched on as to what I could write and what I couldn't write because, um, you yeah, know, I, I know how hard they can be.
0: Yeah, definitely, because I think, you know, it's this really fine line that you have to tread um, to make sure that you get this story across in your own words and in a way that feels true to you as well as, you know, negotiating those institutions that still have so much of a yeah so much power and so much sway but you've got a really really beautiful writing style which sometimes moves back and forth in time and you interweave anecdotes of happy and bittersweet memories with your family and friends and culture with painful and traumatic events but you also intersperse this with humor And the way that you write, I found, also does a really wonderful job of keeping secrets. So you're able to share this deeply personal story while still retaining a level of privacy and refusing this sort of tell-all confessional. So could you tell us a bit about how you developed this style and chose to present um, your story?
5: Yeah, so the way I write is the way I speak. Um, And anyone that knows me, and um, especially family and friends who, who are currently reading the book and have read the book, um they actually can visualize it's like I'm having a one on one conversation with them that's how I speak um, which I found was the easiest way to read, but also the writing style i um, I'm comfortable or you got used to is the way um summary of facts are written in um some um police and document uh, for court documents. So that's how I wrote. And um, initially when I started writing, I just wrote in chronological order um, because that's the only way I know. And then the editors will scribe, they put them all into chapters. But um, along the way as I was writing, um, so I'd be writing about one thing and then it would spark another memory. And that's how we get the interweaving of, um, yeah, going back and forth. And I try to use a lot of humour just to break it up because it's a bit of a trauma porn. Um, but I try to break it up. Um, and I can be funny sometimes, which is it's pretty deadly.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, I think this is the sort of, like, that was just a really um, a really beautiful part of the book is the way that um, your, you know, strength shows through in the way that you employ humour. You know, this, um, you know, you've, you've been experiencing these really incredibly, Difficult circumstances, but also there's always space for love and for humor and for joy. Um, and I think something that really struck me was how you always come back to love and family and this deep relational sense of justice that is rooted way beyond the criminal legal system and your love and protectiveness for your children. Um, so I guess maybe moving towards some of the, some of the part of, uh, your time in the police force, could you, Tell listeners a little bit about why you were motivated to join in the first place and how your position changed over time.
5: Yeah, so I, I initially joined for a few reasons. So one of the main reasons was I wanted to break that cycle of um the fear and the fear that was instilled in me as a young child and, and my father was frightened, you know, terrified of police and my grandmother and grandparents were frightened of police. So we're talking generations here. Um, so I wanted to break the cycle for my children. Um, um, but after being in there for a short time, I realised that the fear was well and truly justified. Um, the brutality and the excessive use of force that I witnessed towards my own people was, um, was so hard to witness. But, um, yeah, and to speak up and speak up... It's up and out about it, um you're pretty much ostracized and which I was um during my whole ten year career in the police um, and I had no friends in the police um the only friends I had um were aboriginal other aboriginal police officers but um yeah like yeah it's just yeah so i I wanted initially to make changes in the police. I wanted to um eradicate the fear that my people, Aboriginal people, have towards police. But, um yeah, I couldn't... It was pretty a hard task. Or it's an impossible task because um, police are racist towards my people, so how can I change a system that have that mentality and, you know, how they racially profile people?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, um Yeah, thank you, because something that really... Um, resonated was, you know, you work so hard in this system, but there are these structural forces um, and the way that the police force is structured makes it so difficult to make that kind of change. And um, I think something that came through as well was the amount of physical and psychological labor of policing as an Aboriginal woman um, that you talk about in the book. And I was wondering if you could talk about um, the way that you... Put that alongside a discussion of those relationships and family relationships that really sustained you during this time?
5: Yeah, so it's um, important to know for people to know that police are not only violent and um, discriminative towards uh, members of the community or civilians as they are known in the police, but they're violent and um, They racially vilify Aboriginal and black or brown or minority people within the police. Um, But in terms of my family, sorry, I just lost a question. Can you repeat that?
0: Yeah, I was just wondering if you could talk about how you um, compare those really difficult relationships in the police force to being sustained by um, your family relationships because you're always coming back to the love of your children and the love of your father.
5: Oh, yeah, yeah. So, um, so of i have a complex family and we've all gone through our own traumas. And to be honest, my siblings have probably had it a, a lot worse than I did. Um, especially, and um, my grandmother had it worse. I mean, from the age she was, the time she was eight years old, she was subjected to, um, atrocious and unspeakable acts against her who've been stolen by the state of Victoria. Um, but I'm very protective of my children and, it always goes back to my children. Like everything I do and ha- I have done is done for them and to pave a better life for them. And so, yeah.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, and I was also wondering if you could maybe talk about, um, because I was really struck by Dr. Chelsea Wadigo's introduction and, and a lot of um, my you know, reading in the book really resonated with some of, Uh, what Dr. Wattego had outlined at the start around Aboriginal sovereignty and resistance in your family and the way, for example, you talk about your grandparents refusing to assimilate. And I was wondering if you could speak to how that kind of shines through in your writing as well, these ideas of sovereignty and resistance.
5: Yeah, so I didn't know it at the time why my grandparents were the way they were. Um, So when I speak of... um, them hiding food and all that. Um, For people who haven't read the book, it's something I mentioned. Um, And that was from when um, they lived on the mission in the early days and rations were handed out. So it's only now that I've come to realise why they were, um, which is really difficult because, yeah, I wish I hadn't known that earlier. Um, Also, my grandmother, she never really spoke about her her, um, experiences, Um, It wasn't until 20 years after she passed and I um, had access to reward files um, that I found out about um, everything that happened to her. But um, I'm so proud of my grandparents for not assimilating and yeah, just really proud of that and um, it was through them that I was so proud of my Aboriginality and my good luck the fact that I always knew that I was Aboriginal. And actually, like, when I was younger, I actually thought um, Aboriginal people were the majority and white fellows were the minority. Yeah, but was, how wrong was I, hey?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that sense of pride just constantly comes through because even though the relationships, if you, as you've said, are really complex um, and people are struggling with really complex trauma, you, that, that pride really um, is there all the way throughout the book. Um, so I was also wondering if you could tell us about some of the writers who really inspire you the most and whose work you might like to amplify here. Who are you reading right now?
5: So uh, um, so I read anything by Dr. Chelsea Watergo. she's so deadly, um Amy McGuire, um Melissa Lukashenko, um Ricky Onis, um, and anything written by my brilliant daughter, May Yeah,
0: I think um this is something that really when I was reading about, you know, through through the book and your pride and assertions of sovereignty and your family just not backing down, I think that is really carried on through your own work and the work of your children, because um, I think it's just just amazing to see how that strength is carried through the generations. Um So, I mean, before we we go into a bit about the launch and where people can get a copy, um, is there anything else that you wanted to mention or anyone else you wanted to shout out?
5: Um, no, really. I just want to thank everyone and especially mob like through um, the social media platforms, their support and the promoting of my book prior to publication has been so like incredible and. And this is the reason why I write, my book, write books and why I do my writing. Um, I particularly write for my people. Um, yeah, so thank you to everyone who has supported me.
0: Yeah, wonderful. And where can people get a copy of Black and Blue?
5: So we, well, any good bookstores will have it. But um, I went into reading uh, Long on Street Carlton yesterday where they've got my book and they're doing my book launch. Tonight. So if anyone's available or if anyone wants to come, feel free to come. Um, details will be on Twitter, I guess. But, um, yeah, anyone can come. Feel
0: free to come. Yeah, wonderful. And and you've also got um, a couple of launches around the country as well. But I am so excited to, to come see you tonight at um, the book launch. And I know that um, Naukagari, Kagari, uh, your child, will be... Um, Introducing that, and uh, your son Paul is going to be DJing as well.
5: Yeah, There's a family affair. We move in tribes too, because sadly, but um, yeah, and no, I'm grateful to have such amazing children. And um, if, if I've done anything right, that's it my parenting of my children and they're my achievements. So.
0: Well, that love and that pride really comes through, <laughs> and, I, and I'm, I'm so glad that we've gotten to speak about this. Um, Thank you so so much for your time, Ronnie, and I really encourage everyone to go out, read the book, and come to the launch if you can. Thank
5: you, Priya, and I'll see you tomorrow. Guys.
0: Yep. Take care. All right, and that was Ronnie Gari, who spoke with us about her memoir, Black and Blue. Ronnie Gari is a Gunai Kurnai woman who lives and writes in Victoria. And, um, yeah, I really encourage people to go pick up a book um, in any good bookseller, but you can also find it online by Scribe Publications, where you should also be able to find out um, the launch uh, dates in a city near you. But just as another reminder, the Melbourne launch is tonight at Readings in Carlton. So hope to see heaps of you there.
4: The Black Lives Matter movement is not going away here or overseas. It gives me hope seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me
1: the understanding that we will win, folks. We will succeed!
3: Every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Jan.
0: You're on 3CR 8.55 a.m. and it is just coming up to 8.19 in the morning. Um, And now we're going to go to a track. This is I Can't Breathe by Dobby and Barker who are going to be performing at the Dajawa Foundation launch this Saturday, April 3rd.
1: of having to explain myself they want to know the history the pain might help they making me wild need to restrain myself if i were you i would educate myself oh no they want me to hate myself to grade dismiss and erase myself they said australia and america's not the same i say david dungay they don't even know the name that's bullshit back to your member telling what's happening you gotta challenge the white settle the narrative got a lot of books they call us nomadic savages. It never happens. Again.
2: its final report into Aboriginal deaths in custody
1: things have actually got worse and there's still no justice come along to the National Day of Action stop Aboriginal deaths in custody Black Lives Matter Saturday the 10th of April 1pm
5: on the steps of
1: Parliament House Melbourne join us in the streets to demand justice and self determination
6: see you there
3: Aid Foundation will hold its 20th annual Charity Radiothon Good Friday appeal this Friday, April 2nd, between 9am and 5.30pm. This will be hosted over the airwaves of 3CR radio, 8.55am, by the Tamil Voice presenters team. The Australian Medical Aid Foundation provides humanitarian medical aid to vulnerable groups in Sri Lanka. And this year it's aiming to fund a dialysis unit for kidney failure patients
2: in a rural province. Please ring the station between 9am and 5.30pm on Friday the 2nd of April and help us achieve our target. A
0: 3CR supporter. And we're just coming up to the end of Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Now, the song you just heard was I Can't Breathe by Dobby and Barker.
3: What a a show this morning. It was absolutely amazing. So many great interviews back to back. It was really full. And that last interview with Ronnie. So beautiful.
0: Yeah, I'm so, so glad that we got the chance to talk about it. I'm going to go ahead and plug uh, the book and the launch uh, in our rundown. So how about we just jump straight
3: into it? Let's do it. So um, first up, Carly spoke with Thea Deacon Greenwood, a solicitor from the Elizabeth Evatt Community Legal Centre, about calls and support for restorative justice models as another way to address sexual assault matters. Elizabeth Evatt Community Legal Centre's support for alternative models to criminal legal systems follows in light of the New South Wales Law Reform Commission recent recommendations to expand criminal legal reforms for sexual consent.
0: After that, we heard an interview uh, by Scheherazade of Tasnim Samak, who's a Ph.D. candidate at Monash University researching the emergence of youth political subjectivities and imaginaries, who spoke with us about the Saturday gathering of hundreds of people at the State lab- Library in Narmor, Melbourne, to commemorate Palestinian Land Day, which falls on March 30th every year, commemorating the murder of six Palestinian protesters in 1976 as they were calling attention to Israel's expropriation of thousands of hectares of land.
3: And then you, Priya, spoke to April Day, a proud Yoda Yoda, Wemba Wemba, and Barapa Barapa woman. She is the daughter of Tanya Day, a proud Yoda Yoda grandmother who died in custody of Victoria Police in 2017. And April is the founder of the Dajua Foundation, which, um, which she discussed with us today, and yeah, which the launch is coming up on Saturday.
0: Yeah, and you can find the Dajua Foundation on social media at at Dajua, D-H-A-D-J-O-W-A on Twitter and on Instagram at Dajua underscore foundation. And you can also find links to their website, to the Eventbrite for the, uh, for the launch and also find out how to just donate to the foundation and more about what they're doing. And finally, I spoke with Ronnie Gar- uh, Gari, who's a Gunai Kurnai woman who lives and writes in Victoria. She joined me today to speak about her debut book, Black and Blue, which is a memoir of her childhood and the decade she spent in the police force. Again, I can't recommend this book highly enough. It is just absolutely beautiful. It is heartbreaking, um, but it is also humorous, and I really... Recommend that people grab a copy from Scribe Publications or any good bookstore near you. Uh, the launch of Ronnie's book I- in Melbourne is going to be tonight uh, from 6 p.m. at Readings Bookstore in Carlton. So I hope to see a lot of people there. And you can also find out information on Scribe Publications about other launches around the country.
3: We were so excited about this book on Thursday Breakfast that I think every single member of the team ordered a separate copy, plus we got one from the publisher. So we're fans, basically.
0: Yeah, I have uh, three copies sitting (laughs) at home that I'm waiting to distribute. So thank you so much again, Ronnie, for coming on to talk about it.
3: That's great. And so thank you so much, everybody, for joining us on Thursday Breakfast again this morning, Um, another packed show. Thanks, Priya.
0: Thanks, Rosie. And see you next week.
2: 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find NIBS in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.